Good morning and happy Father's Day. Since this is our last Sunday here at FFMC, me and Eleanor wanted to read, a special, to read scripture in a special way today. We hope you guys enjoy. We'll be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to grieve over Saul? I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and get going. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I found my next king among his sons. How can I do that? Samuel asked. When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say, I have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will make clear to you what you should do. You will anoint for me the person I point out to you. Samuel did what the Lord instructed. When he came to Bethlehem, the city elders came to meet him. They were shaken with fear. Do you come in peace, they asked. Yes, Samuel answered, I have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Now make yourselves holy, then come with me to the sacrifice. Samuel made Jesse and his sons holy and invited them to the sacrifice as well. When they arrived, Samuel looked at Elihab and thought, that must be the Lord's anointed right in front. But the Lord said to Samuel, have no regard for his appearance or stature, because I haven't selected him. God doesn't look at the at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. Next, Jesse called for Abinadab, Abinadab, who presented himself to Samuel, but he said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. So Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Jesse to Jesse, the Lord hasn't picked any of these. Then Samuel asked Jesse, is that all of your boys? They're still the youngest one, Jesse answered, but he's out keeping the sheep. Send for him, Samuel told Jesse, because we can't proceed until he gets here. So Jesse sent and brought him in. He was reddish brown, had beautiful eyes, and was good looking. The Lord said, that's the one, go anoint him. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him there in front of his brothers. The Lord's Spirit came over David from that point forward. Then Samuel left and went to Ranham. This is the word of the Lord. I love it. Love it. Thank you. Uh, so we're starting a new series, a summer Bible study series. If you've been around First Free past few summers, every summer we do a summer study, and we'll take a book of the Bible, or we'll take something and we'll study through it, and each week we'll have like a focus verse or key verse. And uh, last year we did Revelation. If you remember during quarantine, we did Revelation, and that was uh, a lot of work. Uh, we're going to continue to work this summer, but this summer is a little different. We haven't spent a lot of time in the Old Testament or what we call the Hebrew Scriptures. So this summer, we're going to spend time going through different parts of the Hebrew Scriptures and learning about prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. And so we're going to be learning about them and uh, learning about the history around the, the nation of Israel. And so we're going to be doing that. We're going to have some guest speakers in this summer to give some different perspectives as well. And so it'll be a great summer study. I hope you guys can stay with us all summer or catch up online uh, if you're joining us online or if you miss a Sunday because of vacation. That's the beauty of online. You can catch up what's going on in the series and where we're at. So each week will be something different. Uh, and we're going to be looking at the, the Old Testament. 
and uh, Hebrew scriptures. So you'll hear me use those two terms interchangeably because uh, the Bible was written, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So, but also today is Father's Day, right? And we actually heard a story about a father and some sons. And if anybody has expectations for anybody, it's usually a dad for their children, right? We have expectations as fathers. I know my father was a teacher and was always trying to teach me uh, things as I was growing up. And I remember one of the life lessons my dad taught me usually came about, and I think your parents, one of your parents, maybe if your dad did the same thing to you, but it usually goes something like this. So something happens between you and your siblings. So I had a brother, and we would fight, or we'd get in trouble, or he'd get a bigger piece of cake than I got, right? So all these things. Anytime something like that happened, if I got in trouble for something and he didn't, or if he got more, more ice cream than I did, or I perceived it that way, you know what I'd say, right? What, what would I say to my my dad, I'd say, that's not fair, right? You guys have said that before too? And then, you know, my dad had a response that went something like this. Maybe this was the same response you heard. My dad would say to me in in response to that statement, well, who told you life was going to be fair, right? Or nobody said life was going to be fair, right? That That was my dad's response. And basically what my dad was teaching me is that life doesn't go as you expect it, right? We don't, doesn't always go like you expect it, and that there are differences between realistic expectations and unrealistic expectations. In today's story, we're looking at some expectations, right? But here's some unrealistic expectations that at least I think that we have, and you'll notice a key word in each one of these expectations. The first one is life should be fair. We just heard that one, life should be fair. How about this one? People should agree with me. Does anybody have that as an expectation? Anybody? Come on, John. I knew you'd, you'd be there with me. Thank you. How about people should like me? Anybody have that expectation? You, you, shouldn't people like me and everything about me and everything I say, right? I would say that all three of those expectations are unrealistic expectations. And the reason I know that is because life is not always fair. People al- do not always like me. And the other thing is people definitely do not always agree with me. So, and I... In fact, if we really think about it, even in today's world, like, I have yet to meet somebody who 100% agrees with me on every single thing, right? Nobody fully agrees 100%. So that's an unrealistic ex- expectation. And the key word in there is should, right? That's a, that sets us up for an unrealistic expectation, you know, because of these things. Now, how do you know if you have an unrealistic expectation of others? Well, one of the ways we know is that whenever we become more critical of others, or we start to see the little things, the little details, or uh, the, start to get critical of little things rather than the big things, that's when we, sit, we know that we're in this place where we're wanting everything to be exactly as we see it. And that's an unrealistic expectation. There is no way that everything in life will go exactly as we would like it to go as we see it, as we plan it in our eyes. Because there are other people that we're in community with, right? So that's an unrealistic expectation. Whenever we start to go there, we're going to have unrealistic expectations of other people and even of ourselves. Now, what is a realistic expectation? A realistic expectation is what is an expectation that can actually be met within human limitations. And we're all human. 
that we all are in process. We're all not arrived. You know, my dad exercised a lot of patience with me as an adolescent growing up. Even when I was complaining, life's not fair, he was also exercising patience with me because he knew that I was still growing up. I was still learning things. And his patience actually helped me with the growth. So he wasn't expecting me to be perfect right, you know, right away. Maybe he expected me to be perfect later in life, and he's probably still waiting for that. But you know what I'm saying, that he understood because that I was growing that he was willing to be patient with my growth process. And I think that's the way God is with us as well. You know, that, that God doesn't place this unrealistic expectation, but does want us to grow and offers us patience for that growth to happen. Now, our passage today is about expectations, God's expectations, a father's expectations, right? And as we get into that, before that, I want to back up and kind of give us a pretty broad, big picture of the history of what's happening in the Hebrew Scriptures. So we're talking about the nation of Israel throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and we see in this a kind of like an overall history or timeline that we'll come back to uh, again, but I just kind of want to give you a high view. So we start out, the book of Genesis starts the, the Hebrew scriptures with the creation of the world. And the first five books, including the next 12 books of the Bible, the first 17 books of the Bible, are the history of the nation of Israel. And we start out from creation, uh, and then we find out about these families, and then we find out about these patriarchs. One of those patriarchs is named Abraham, and so what we call this beginning phase of the history is called the patriarchal age, or the age of the patriarchs. We actually begin to see, even within this phase of their history, the rise of priests, all right? So that's one place we're going to start to see priests. We'll see priests elsewhere. If you read the book of Leviticus, it's about priests. Then, uh, also in that history is the exodus. So the the Exodus story happens. So there's like 400 years of history that we don't really know much about. We just know that the patriarchs resided in Egypt and they lived in Egypt and then the, they, they were enslaved in Egypt. And that there's a key mark of history in the Hebrew Scriptures and that is the Exodus story and them wandering in the wilderness. And this is a formation period uh, that God forms uh, the people of God, right? We also marked this uh, yesterday, uh, Juneteenth. We marked the Emancipation Proclamation in the United States. It was a key moment in the history of our nation, uh, the ending of slavery. It's the same thing here in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Exodus is the ending of a period of sla- 400 years of slavery that then begins a formation or reformation of the people of God. And so we see this, and they begin to form into tribes. So we go from like patriarchs to tribes, And then out of those tribal leaders, they come to a prophet and priest named Samuel, who we see in the text today. And they come to Samuel at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and they say, Samuel, we want a king, because all the other nations have kings. Give us a king. And that's not something that God wanted to do, but that God was patient with them and said, okay, they want a king, Samuel, let's give them a king. wasn't what Samuel wanted to do. It certainly wasn't what God wanted to do in that moment. But I think God, this is a place where God was exercising patience with God's people. And so said, okay, Samuel, let's give them a king. And so they anointed Saul, who we heard about in this text today, the first king of Israel. So that's the beginning of the monarchy, the period of monarchy. Then later on, it becomes a divided monarchy after Saul, David, and Solomon. Then we start to see a divided kingdom, two different kings, two different parts. We have Israel and Judah, two, two kingdoms run by different kings, 
And then that allows foreign powers to come in and conquer Israel, and then we have something called the exile. And so then these Assyria and Babylonia come in, they attack northern and southern Israel, and they take people, take the people of Israel into exile into these other nations. That begins that process. And in that period of history, we see a lot of the prophets emerge. If you read a lot of the prophets in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, you'll see there are actually uh, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Again, 17 books of the Bible given to prophets. And then after the exile, the people come back to Jerusalem. There is a restoration of the kingdom, but it's always under foreign rule until the day of Jesus, where we find Jesus and the Israelites under Roman rule. So that's the history. You got the whole history now? Now you've, you, you know the history of Israel right now. Give yourself a hand, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you still with me? All right, good. So here's what's happening today in the passage. We're in 1 Samuel. We're one of the history books of the the Hebrews. And we see that the first king was Saul. And Saul was pretty much a failure as a first king. And part of his failure was a heart issue for Saul. uh, his, His spirit had grown dark, so to speak. He had become a heart of heart. He was filled with jealousy and anger and envy and rage. And so this was a part of what was happening in Saul. So he basically was a failed as the king. And when they came to him, they selected him as king. Samuel was the one who anointed him king. And now he's going to anoint another king. And he's got to do it in secret, right? Because Saul's still hanging around. If Saul finds out that he's anointing another king, Saul's going to be threatened by it. He's already jealous enough and envious enough uh, of his heart that this would have just uh, put his life on the line. So he goes in secret. And notice this key verse. Here's our key verse for today. And our key verse out of 1 Samuel is this. It says in verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Have no regard for his appearance or stature, because I haven't selected him. God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart, right? God is looking into the heart. That's a key idea here, key theme, a key verse here in this text today. Because we have to go back, and we'd have to back up into chapter 9. And in chapter 9, we discover that when Samuel goes to select Saul, they talk about how good-looking he is. They actually talk about how David's still good-looking, too, as a king, right? But they talk about how good-looking Saul is. But the other thing they talk about in chapter 9, verse 2, is that Saul was a foot taller than all the other Israelites. So he, like, he was a big dude, right? In fact, he was Israel's giant. He was the biggest warrior on the field. And so naturally they thought, okay, we're going to look at the outward appearance of Saul. We're going to see Saul, and boy, he will really put courage into our troops when we go into battle, when we pull our tribes together, people will rally around him. So they looked at the outward appearance of Saul in the anointing of Saul as king. And so this is a lesson that Israel is learning when it comes to king number two, right? It's a part of what God is teaching them and saying that, you know, I'm not going to look at the outward appearance like human beings do. And do we look at the outward appearance of people? Yes, we do. (laughs) In fact, sociologists have called this the halo effect. And the halo effect in sociological research is that when you and I see someone who's attractive, 
we assume more positive traits to that person just based on how they look. We'll assume they're more altruistic. We'll assume they have integrity. We'll assume they're stable. We'll assume they're intelligent. So those are the assumptions we make about attractive persons. They're more likely to get a job. They're more likely to get paid more. In fact, criminals that are good-looking get lesser sentences in general than criminals that aren't good-looking. So, you know, when the lawyer tells you to dress up for court, you, you dress up for court. You look good, right? Because there's part, this is what's happening. The halo effect is at work in us. Now, the good news for the rest of us that aren't good-looking is that only 90, well, 95% of us would be rated as average attraction. Does that help? All right, so... Now that we have, we're all the average people, um, except for my wife, she's in the, the above average category. I'm kidding. I had to embarrass her just for a second. But, what you're, but that's good news, right? Because really we're talking about 5% of the population that would be rated this way. But God doesn't do that, and that's good news. <laughs> that is such good news for us. Not whether because we're good looking or not good looking, but because that's not what God's worried about. In fact, the other thing we learn about the halo effect is it's short-term. It doesn't last, especially if you don't have a good personality. You may have good looks, but if you don't have a good personality and a good heart and good integrity and good character, it's not going to get you very far in life, right? And so the other thing I've learned, too, as I've gotten older is that beauty fades, right? A good looks fade, right? So we're all, uh, the, any attractive person is going to lose that attraction over time. So that's not really what God's looking at at all. God looks at the heart. We know this. We know that old phrase from when we were kids, don't judge a book by its cover, which is what Israel had done in selecting the king. So God looks at David and says, here is a person who has the right heart. And then there's something else God's going to do. But we know this. We actually see this in in the story of David in that he has this character and integrity and heart. Now, he does mess up. He's not perfect. But in this stage of the history of his story, we actually see that he is anointed king in secret. Saul is still the king. So there's this period of time where David is anointed king while Saul is still king. And Saul uh, doesn't know about this to begin with. But what happens is King David actually begets, uh, becomes an armor bearer in Saul's court. He becomes a musician in Saul's court. And when Saul was in these fits of rage, they would call David in to play music to calm his spirit. That's how dark Saul's heart was at this point in time. And so there was a lot of like, I would say David probably walked on eggshells around Saul a lot because he was the anointed king, right? He was the next king and he knew that and a few other people knew that, but Saul didn't know that. But eventually Saul does become threatened by David and David has to flee the court of the king and go into hiding because Saul wants to kill him. David is a threat. And so there's actually twice where David has the opportunity to take Saul's life. And in one incident, David is with his men and they're hiding in a cave because they're fleeing from Saul. They're being attacked by Saul and Saul's troops. So they're hiding in this cave Saul walks into the cave by himself to relieve himself in this cave, and David is there. And his, David, the, his friends with him are like, oh, David, this is your chance. Take out Saul. Kill Saul right now while you can, and get out from under this threat. And you know what David decides to do? <clears throat> David says, no, I'm not going to do it. 
I'm not going to lift my hand against God's anointed, is what he says. He says, I'm not going to do that. Now, I think this is character, right? This is integrity on, Saul, on David's part. He had the opportunity to take control of the situation. He had the opportunity to, to take expectations into his own hands at this point. And everybody would have cheered for him if he had done that, but he chooses not to do it. Why? I think because of integrity. I think David's got the long term in mind because what David is doing is saying, well, if I do that to the king, when I'm king, how will you treat me? <laughs> right? He's also setting an example. He's saying, well, how, how should the king be treated? He's not, it's not just about Saul. It's about how we treat the people of God or God's anointed in this particular case, right? So David has some integrity. I also think that a great description of what's happening here is the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. I've been reading a book called The Cry of the Soul by uh, Tremper Longman and Dan Allender. And he said, and this is their definition of unrighteous anger. It says, unrighteous anger is dark energy that demands for the self a more tolerable world now. Right? An expectation. Instead of waiting for God's redemption according to divine design and timing. And I think that's what David's doing. He's saying, I'm not going to give in to my unrighteous anger and attack and kill Saul. I'm going to trust God's timing and divine plan for Saul and for me. That's, un, that's, that's righteous anger, right? Righteous anger is able to actually believe and have faith and hope in God and God's sense of justice uh, that will one day happen, right? So that's what's happening. So he reveals something about David's heart here in that situation. Now, the other thing that happens in this passage for David is that he begins, because his heart is good or open or willing, that after his anointing, God sends the Holy Spirit into his, into his being, right? And I, I think if you start to look in the Old Testament, you'll start to see there's this connection between a person's heart, that God is looking at the heart of a person, and then God is sending the Holy Spirit to that particular person or leader for what God wants to do. God does this with Moses. Uh, God does this with other people, Esther, and other people throughout the, the Old Testament, right? So that's what's happening here. And so we see this in verse 13. It says, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him right there in front of his brothers. No sibling rivalry to worry about, right? The Lord's Spirit came over David from that point forward. So the Spirit, again, the, the text is saying the Holy Spirit is now with David. Now, if you know your Sunday school lessons, and if you know anything of the Old Testament, I'm going to ask the question just to see if you're still with me in a week. And those of you in the first service can't answer. What's the first recorded act of David after he's anointed king and God sends the Holy Spirit to him? What's the first recorded act of David? It's not that hard, by the way. Goliath, right. The very thing that the Bible records next is David going up against Goliath. Now, this is an important part of Hebrew history because Saul is the king. David is the anointed king. Saul is the giant that they selected, right, for themselves as king because of his outward appearance. But who's not going to fight Goliath? 
the king, the giant, their own giant. Israel's giant is not going to face the Philistine giant. Who do they send? Who ends up going? The one empowered by the Holy Spirit, David. And he's not big. (laughs) He's small. He doesn't even fit into Saul's armor, right? And he's not trying to be Saul, right? But he is emboldened and empowered by God's Spirit because of his heart. So God goes to those whose hearts, right, are ready, are willing, are good. And God, I think, looks at the heart and says, who can I send my spirit to? Who will accept the Holy Spirit in their lives? Who will receive the Holy Spirit? And how can I empower them to be the people of God? I think this matters for us even today, right? God wants to regenerate us and give us the same boldness of David to face Goliath. That's what the Holy Spirit looks like. If you want to look at what the Holy Spirit looks like working in our lives, we can look at the life of David who says, and notice if you go read the story of David and Goliath, in fact, go do it later today. It's what David is, David's problem is not, I don't like Goliath. It's how dare you come against the God of Israel? How dare you, Goliath, taunt the God of Israel? He's angry, not at at anything. He's angry because he is mocking God is God, right? And that's where the Holy Spirit wants to go face the Goliath and say, nope, you're not in control, Goliath. You're not in charge. And everybody's expectations in that story are turned upside down, right? And that's the way the Holy Spirit works. (laughs) Think about this. Does the Holy Spirit turn our expectations upside down? I think so. That's what's happening. Takes our unrealistic expectations and flips them around and says, here's what to expect from the Holy Spirit. So, what about us? So, this was a matter of heart for Samuel. Samuel was still getting his heart right. It was a matter of heart for Saul. Saul's heart had grown dark. It was a matter of heart for David. He had to figure out, you know, be open to what God wanted to do in his heart. It's also a matter of our hearts today. You know, Psalm 139 encourages us to examine ourselves to examine our hearts, to say, what's my heart like today? And what would God see if God were looking at my heart? What would God see today if God were to look into your heart today? Would there be righteous anger or unrighteous anger? Would there be patience or envy and jealousy and contempt? Would there be love or hate? What, if you were to say, God, examine my heart today, what would God see there? And if you and I are willing, and if our hearts are open, God will send the Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts, to change our hearts, to reform our hearts, and give us new ones. How many people would like a new heart today? I would, right? It's possible. That's faith. Faith allows that to be possible. Faith can move mountains. Faith can change hearts as well. You know, in 1989, uh, Israeli soldier and sergeant uh, Ziv Trom 
was with his partner on patrol outside Gaza City on the south road of Gaza City, where they were attacked by Palestinians, uh, gunmen. And Zeev was shot and killed by one of those gunmen and lost his life. Uh, we don't know what, I don't know what happened to his partner. The, the uh, story didn't cover that. But after they, he had been shot, he, they went to his wife and they informed his wife that he had been killed and uh, she was obviously in grief. And in her grief, they came back not too long after that and they had a request of her. It turns out that there was another person, her name was Hannah Cotter, who was a Palestinian woman who was wait, had been waiting four months for a heart transplant. And Zeev's heart was a match for her heart transplant. So now his grieving widow is being asked to give the heart of the one she loves to her enemy. What would you do? What, if you, what would you do if the people that you hated and were angry at and had just killed your spouse, the person that you loved, how would you respond in that moment? What would your heart want to do? Jealousy? Envy, unrighteous anger, get even, withhold the gift, right? Those are all things we'd have to wrestle with. What would you do if you were his wife? Would you be willing to give the heart of the one you love to the person that you don't like or hate or is your enemy? Let me ask another question. Did God not give the heart of the one he loved for his enemies, us? Did God not take the heart of the one he loved and say, I want to put this heart in every human being and transplant their hearts with the heart of Jesus and the heart of Christ? Isn't that what God wanted to do? And isn't that what God wants to do in each of our hearts? Right? Right? God wants us to have a heart transplant. Now, to finish the story, she said yes. She set aside her bitterness. She set aside her anger. She set aside her envy. And she gave the heart of her husband to save the life of a Palestinian woman. And it worked. And I would say to you that two hearts were transplanted that day. The physical heart of Zeev into the woman, but the heart of his wife was transplanted, transplanted with the heart of God. The question for us is, are, do we want that? And if we do, God will send the Holy Spirit to us to help that to happen for us. Let's pray. God, take our hearts of stone Take our hearts of hurt and pain and trauma and anger and frustration and envy and jealousy and shame and contempt. Take these hearts of ours and give us a new heart. Give us the heart of Jesus. Give us the heart of patience and realistic expectations and give us a heart of love and compassion and give us a heart that is filled with the Holy Spirit 
that enables us to experience gentleness and goodness and self-control and all those wonderful things that we long for of a changed heart. Lord, would you transplant our hearts with the heart of Christ? Would you give us a new heart today? For anyone here that is struggling, Lord, I pray that you would also give them the faith, the courage, the tenacity to accept this new heart of Christ. Would you just do that for them today? Would you give them that new heart, the heart of Christ, today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.